the early church at the Council of Nicaea put together four adjectives to describe the church. They declared in what is known as the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The first word that they used was one. That the church is one because God is one. Despite a multitude of local churches, various denominations, we all share one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus said Himself in John 10.16 that there is but one flock and one shepherd. What is characteristic of the church is its unity. And so the church is one. But also, holy. And holy not because its members are inherently holy, but because, again, God is holy. And what is interesting about the church is that it's the only institution where the requirement to be a member is to be a sinner. Which means that the church is filled with sinners. Yet it is called holy because God who is holy declares that the church is holy. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth with all of its problems, he he said to the saints in Corinth. Literally, to the holy ones in Corinth. Well, why, why was he able to say that? It's because God has made His people holy by calling them out of darkness and bringing them into union with His Son. As Christians, we are in Christ and Christ is in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so the church's holiness is fundamentally then Christ's holiness. And so the church is one holy and the third description that they used was Catholic. Catholic. Which simply means universal. And universal because God is both Lord of all the earth and He is King of the ages. There is a universal church that is not defined by geography, not bound by ethnicity, not beholden to social class, not restricted by time. That ultimately there is but one church comprising of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter when they live. And it's funny, the Roman Catholic Church proclaims to be Catholic. But I would argue that they are not really Catholic. It's because Roman Catholic in and of itself is a contradiction of terms. The title Roman denies the very universality of the church that the church can be only found in Rome. But not only is the church one and holy and Catholic, but lastly, apostolic. Which brings us to our passage. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, as we approach the mount of your divine and sacred word, would we come, as it were, taking the sandals off of our feet? For your word is holy ground. For here you speak to us. Give us hearts that are humble and ready to listen. Give us wills that are eager to follow and obey. Holy Spirit, reveal to us the glory of your Son. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. When we say that the church is apostolic, it is not because we believe that there are apostles in the church today. Nor is there a succession of apostolic authority through a line of popes in which Peter was the first. The church is apostolic because Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. You see, the apostles were instrumental in the building of God's church, in the foundation by which they laid. But the question is, how? How did they do this? How did the apostles go about laying this foundation for the church? The answer is through sacred Scripture. The church stands in direct continuity back to the apostles through the divinely inspired Word in which they preached. In that the Gospel Word Jesus gave to His apostles is the same Gospel Word we preach today. And so thus Jesus began building His church when He called His apostles to follow Him. Those whom He chose would be His witnesses of the resurrection. Thus confirming that His death was the ultimate triumph over sin. And they would go on to declare and preach what they had seen with their eyes, what they had heard with their ears, giving birth to the church in the book of Acts. This is how the foundation was laid. Beginning with His apostles and the very message they would preach of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice His blueprint was revealed in Matthew chapter 16 when He asked His disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And you know this story. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. And then you'll remember Jesus, He got, he got personal. But who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who responded. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, this brash fisherman unknowingly disclosed what was to be the very foundation of the church. Not upon Peter, the rock, but upon this rock, that Jesus is Himself the Christ. Upon the rock of Christ and His saving work that Christ would build His church. This is the message in which the apostles would preach. And it's the very treasure in which Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians contained in jars of clay. This is how Jesus, the divine architect, would build His church by means, by means of preaching His Word. And you see, church, that's a lesson for us. We can never go away from the foundation. And I ask, how much of this is lost in the contemporary church today? It's actually quite disheartening that out of an abundance of churches in a given area, that a person, that one has to consult a particular website, seek a recommendation to find a church that will simply do one thing, unreservedly preach God's Word. 
That's so hard to find. That to find a church that knows its foundation is scarce. And it shouldn't be that way. But it is. More likely, you'll find a church that has made its foundation to be as inviting as possible as it can be, so as to not offend anyone, or to be as relevant to the current culture, or to even be helpful to the surrounding community. Now, none of those things, though they may sound nice, they don't constitute what the church is. John Calvin, the reformer, he said, it's the right preaching of the Word and the right administration of the sacrament. That's where you'll find a true church. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church in which Jesus begins to build in Luke chapter 6 and that by appointing His apostles who would lay that critical foundation. Now, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 6, Jesus calls His disciples to Him and He appoints His chosen few, twelve to be exact. And what I want us to do this afternoon is I want us to see three things in this process. I want you to notice first how the church began. It began with the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, He retreats to the mountain to pray before He does anything. The second is that the church began with the most unlikely of men. Uh, We've come to know some of them already. Peter, uh, the fisherman. Matthew, the tax collector. But there's more. And we can ask, why did Jesus do that? Why not choose the most able, the most gifted? Notice there's not one priest, not one scribe, not one teacher. Why did He do? Why, why did He choose these particular men? And the third is this. More than asking why Jesus chose the unlikeliest of men, why did He choose a man who would ultimately betray Him? Luke, in verse 16 here in chapter 6, makes sure to mention the last apostle who became apostate. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Why would Jesus choose a traitor? And so three things for us to see here in our time together. And we begin with the first. And notice is that Jesus, before doing anything, verse 12, went out to the mountain to pray. Here we have Luke making mention to us again as he has repeatedly done so thus far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' life of secret prayer. Abandoning whatever duties that may have seemed to be required of him to fulfill that which was greatest. To spend time in communion with his Father. Something that is often asked about Jesus is this. Why did Jesus have to pray? Why did he have to pray? If he was the eternal Son of God, Why did He come to the Father for help? Was it simply for appearances? Was it simply to set for us an example? Hebrews 5, 7 says that in His flesh, He prayed with loud cries and tears. And so was it all an act? You see, Jesus prayed because He needed to pray. Every act of His Humanity came through the power of the Holy Spirit and that out of necessity. Uh, What a thought to say that the Son of God by whom the universe was made was in need. Pastor Eric in his Christmas sermon talked about the mystery 
of the Incarnation. The hypostatic union of two natures, human and divine, in the one person of Christ. It's a mystery that the Son of God was in need of a human mother to nurse Him, to feed Him. But more than needing the care of a mother, the Son of God needed the Holy Spirit in order to be in communion with His Father. Never was a prayer uttered before God from the lips of Christ that did not have the Holy Spirit working powerfully in His human nature to enable Him to speak the words the Father had given Him to speak. In other words, Christ's inseparable companion during His earthly ministry as true man was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, it says in John 3.34, was given to Him without measure. And so Jesus, He prayed out of necessity. Out of necessity and in full dependence upon the Spirit. You know, when we meditate upon that phrase, that God became flesh, that is powerfully depicted, yes, in the manger, and definitely at the cross. But the verification that God became flesh is also seen in our praying Lord. In full trust of His Father. By the enabling of the Spirit. Now let me tell you why this makes prayer all the more relevant to us. It's because while we don't share in Christ's deity, we share in His Spirit. Paul writes, Galatians 4.6, that because of our sonship, because we've been adopted into the family of God, he says this, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts by which we can cry. We can cry out like He did. Abba, Father. Do you know what that means, church? It means that the Father will listen to us as He listened to His only begotten Son that our cries to Him are no less heard than when Jesus cried to His heavenly Father. God is listening. His divine ear is willing and wanting to receive our petitions and our pleadings. And if we have access in prayer to the Father who is in heaven, how is it then that we find ourselves in such weak discipline in it? That we neglect such a portal of His grace. Something is not right when we are so averse to prayer. When it doesn't seem to matter to us that the secret communion in which the Son of God possessed with His Holy Father is readily available and open to us. What does it say about us when we find any and all excuses to deny ourselves this heavenly privilege, this special grace. One thing it does say is this. That we think we can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit better than Jesus Himself. That's exactly what that's saying. We think we can live this life more successfully than the Son of God. But here's the thing. There is no such thing as a Christian life apart from the Spirit. 
You know, how many of us are struggling? How many of us are anxious about our lives? Finding ourselves more frustrated with whatever we find ourselves frustrated with. Discontent with this situation. Angry about that situation. Finding no joy in our lives. Beloved, can I tell you why? The issue isn't anything external. But it's internal. The problem is that there is no real secret communion. No dependence upon the Holy Spirit by the work of the Son to come to the Father. We expect somehow that we can live our lives apart from that sacred avenue independence upon the Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry, he says this, We must be in communion with our God daily, without which it is impossible that our souls prosper. Why is my soul not prospering? It's not the church. It's not other people. It's you. It's you. In true evaluation of my heart, it's me. I'm the problem. I have been attempting to live apart from the portal of grace in reliance upon the Spirit. And so church, would we then go daily seeking the mount to pursue that secret communion with our Lord? And notice here that when Jesus went into secret communion with His Father, He did so for a considerable amount of time. Look at verse 12. All Night, verse 12 says, all night he continued in prayer to God. The way Luke puts it here is literally, he emphasizes it with persevering energy. With all perseverance, Jesus prayed. Here was Jesus in the night, and all through the night he prayed. While the moon ran its course, while the night temperature dropped, while the evening dew wet his robes, his face was set towards his Father and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Sometimes we become so cautious of being pharisaical and emphasizing time in prayer that we fall victim to thinking that prayer doesn't require time. It does require time. Yes, the Lord hears our short prayers, but if we are honest with ourselves, what are we so afraid of giving up? It's our time. It's our time. So that we can do what we feel we need to do. That we can do what we want to do. And all of it really reveals so much about our hearts and what we truly desire. Secret communion demands time. It requires our full and undivided attention. It involves our heart, our soul, our mind. You see, we have no problem binge-watching through however many episodes of whatever we enjoy watching. Yet how can we as Christians say that we have no time? Now we can see why Jesus prayed for so long here. Because He was about to make it such an important decision. The, fo- the whole future of the church in a way was dependent on the choice He was about to make. He- it had to be in perfect agreement with the will of His Father. And so Jesus, He had to pray on that mountain And that throughout the night. 
very similar like the time he was going to pray on a different mountain when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Notice here, if Jesus was being practical, he would have spent the night interviewing and going through the resumes of all his disciples, doing his due diligence with their former employers, calling a Galilean fishing company. Hello? I'm calling about an employee of yours. His name is Peter. Want to know about him? This is not to say that we don't do what is practical. But there is something that takes far more precedence, the spiritual. And beloved, that applies to everything in life. From our marriages, our parenting, to our jobs, to our money, to our time, etc., This was the reason Jesus spent the whole night praying to be directed by the Spirit to seek the will of His Father. He was praying for the church even before the church began. And what do we know about Jesus and His prayers for the church? That His prayers didn't just persevere through one night. But He continues to pray for His church today. Hebrews 7.25 says that we have a great high priest whoever lives to make intercession for His church. That the risen Lord sits at the right hand of the Father in glory, and He's still praying. Beloved, are you praying? Are you making use of this grace? This special portal to be in secret communion with God? And if not, why? Why? Are we really going to say that we have no time? Well, while Jesus prayed through the long hours of the night, notice that morning came. Verse 13, look with me. (coughs) And when day came, He called His disciples and He chose from them twelve. And notice secondly here that He chose the unlikeliest of men. What we discover here, first of all, is that there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. And we need to know that they're not the same designation. We often refer to the apostles as Jesus' disciples, and that they were. But Jesus had more disciples than 12. In Luke 10, he'll send out 72 of them on a preaching mission. And so Jesus had a handful of disciples, or you might say followers. But from this large cast of those who followed him, he chose 12. Luke 6.13 says that he chose 12, whom he named Apostles. Well, what was the difference? They served as his representatives, who not only spoke on his behalf, but who possessed the authority of the one who had sent them. And so when Jesus separated these 12 men, he gave them apostolic authority. He was assigning to them his own authority, so that what they said and what they did carried with it the full weight of Jesus' authority. Now, I want to begin with the first apostle and the greatest apostle in the New Testament. His name is not Peter. His name isn't Paul. But the first apostle in the truest sense is none other than Jesus Himself. He is the chief apostle. Jesus said this in John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. The first and greatest apostle 
came from the Father, to whom was given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. So that when Jesus spoke, He spoke with the authority of the One who had sent Him. And the One who had sent Him was God. In a similar manner, Jesus then selected His apostles and said to them, The one who hears you, hears Me. And the one who rejects you, rejects Me. And the one who rejects Me, rejects Him who sent Me. Now here's why that matters to us. It means that to know Jesus is to know Jesus as revealed to us in and by the preaching of the apostolic Word. If we want to have Christ, we must receive Christ in and through the teaching of His apostles and prophets. Because they carry the authority of the One who commissioned them. Scripture tells us that the foundation of the church lies in the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. The Bible says there is no other foundation that can be laid but that which is laid in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And so when we reject the apostles and prophets, when we reject the Word, we reject not only the foundation of the church, but we reject Christ. This is why there is no Christianity outside of what is contained in the truth of Scripture. And of all people to be His apostles, Jesus, after praying throughout the entire night in reliance upon the Spirit and the will of His Father, and He came and He chose the most normal, everyday men. He chose Simon and Andrew, a pair of brothers, Fisherman by trade. Andrew was actually the first disciple he called when he left following John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And then you had another pair of brothers who were also fishermen named James and John. Nicknamed the sons of thunder because they tended to run a little bit hot. There was nothing meek and mild about them. As one time they wanted to rain fire down from heaven on a group of Samaritans. The next two on Luke's list were two friends, Philip and Bartholomew. Philip, not to be confused with the one from the book of Acts who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, this Philip was like the others. He too was a fisherman. But what was noteworthy about Philip is what he said to Jesus. He said to Jesus this. He said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. What Philip was saying was, we've seen wonderful things that you've done. We've witnessed the turning of water into wine. We've seen you walk on water. We've seen you calm the sea. We've seen you raise a dead man from the grave. But there's really one thing we want. We want to see the Father and then we'll be satisfied. And if there was ever a time when Jesus seemed to be disappointed with one of His disciples, it was on this occasion. Because He said to Philip, He said, Have I been with you so long and you you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? But for all of his faults, Philip, after being called to Jesus, immediately told his best friend, he had a bestie, his name was Bartholomew. And he went to Bartholomew and he said, we found him. He says in John 1.45, we found him of whom Moses and in the law, 
and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. And it was Bartholomew who goes by the name Nathaniel who replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nathaniel, after being told of Jesus, he was, he was approached by the Lord himself. Jesus pursued this fisherman. And Nathaniel, he said to Jesus, he said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, your, your bestie, when you were under the fig tree, Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you. And it wasn't just Peter who made the, a great confession about Jesus. Nathaniel confessed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Following Philip and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, was a tax collector and a skeptic, Matthew and Thomas. We've come to know Matthew, but Thomas, he wasn't always a doubter. When things escalated as Jesus neared the cross, he told his disciples that he was going to be arrested and suffer and die. Well, most of the disciples, they wanted no part in that. But Thomas said this. He said, well, let us also go that we may die with him. That's what Thomas said. At the outset, he was willing to accompany Jesus to the point of death. Next was James. Often called James the Lesser. And it may be that he was younger than the other James or Maybe he was smaller in stature than the other James, small James. But what's interesting is that the only thing that Scripture tells us about this James is his name. If he ever wrote anything, or if he had ever done anything in history, all of it is lost. No fame, no notoriety. In James, we truly find the kind of person Jesus chose to build his church. A nobody. A man in obscurity. All we know is that his mother was one of the women who prepared Jesus' body for burial. But these are the men in which Jesus chose. The unlikeliest of candidates. Men of obscurity. There was nothing that qualified them for the job. They were neither priests nor teachers. They didn't have any religious influence. Most of them were lowly fishermen. The others were tradesmen. They weren't known for their talents. They weren't known for their intellectual abilities. Rather, these apostles, they were prone to mistakes and misstatements. They were known for their wrong attitudes and their lapses of faith and even bitter failure. They were common men. And it's interesting that in one, you had a Jewish traitor to his country and a tax collector named Matthew. And in the other, you had a former Jewish zealot who was radically determined to overthrow Rome. And so you had these two people, Matthew, and you had this zealot on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Simon, the zealot here, he was, he was nothing like Matthew. I wonder how they got along, right? And not only did you have people on opposite ends of the political spectrum, you had people with, with opposite personalities. There's another one in Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. His name is Thaddeus, which means a nursing baby. While Simon was 
radically zealous to overthrow Rome. He's probably like a, a tough guy. Judas, or Thaddeus here, Judas, the son of James, he was a mama's boy. His nickname was literally a nursing baby. That's kind of an offense. Hey, you're like a nursing baby. What? But together, whatever their personalities, whatever their occupations, whatever their backgrounds, they were the most unlikeliest of men. Unlikely for the monumental task to which they were called to lay the very foundation of Christ's church of which the gates of hell could never prevail. There was nothing in and of themselves that qualified them for the job. Rather, the opposite. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they began to preach, the people perceived, it says, that they were unschooled and ordinary men. And so we can ask, then what was it about them? Why did Jesus go to the mountain to pray? Through the long hours of the night in full reliance upon the Spirit, seeking the Father's will, only to come back down and choose these twelve? Why did you pray? When there was nothing about them that qualified them for the work. You see, that was the point. That was the point. There in Acts 4.13, it says that when the people saw their boldness and perceived that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished. Well, why were, why were they astonished? What, what was it about them that stood them apart? It's simply this. It says, for they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. What made all the difference is that these men had been with Jesus. And being with Jesus, they were filled with His very Spirit. The reason why Jesus chooses ordinary men in obscurity is so that His glory would shine all the brighter. That we might know it's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. You see, when we decrease, He will increase. It's never about credentials, but always about Christ. The Apostle Paul, he's sort of the Apostle come lately, as it were. He had all the credentials. He was a part of the religious elite. Wealthy, connected, privileged. But when he came to Christ, he renounced all dependency on human capacity. His original name, Saul, after the proud first king of Israel, was changed to Paul, meaning small. He said, I count all these things rubbish in order to gain Christ. You see, all of this tells us something about God's church. That the building of His kingdom is entirely independent of help from this world. And that shows us that the church truly has a divine origin. And it comes from Him. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He said this, If we ever strive to do any work for Christ, let us beware of leaning on an arm of flesh. Let us watch the secret inclination which is natural to all to look to money or learning or high patronage or great men's support for success. If we want to do good to souls, we must not look first to the powers of this world, 
We should begin where the church of Christ began. We should seek agents filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, church, God hasn't called us to be apostles, but He has called us to be Christians. And the real power in our lives comes not in our resources, but upon simple reliance upon Him. That's where we'll be fruitful. That's where we'll be faithful to the high calling in which He has called us. That's where His power and His grace will be most displayed when we renounce dependence upon our natural selves and come trusting in Him. This is the church. Now as I look at this list of apostles from Jesus chose, two names actually stand out here. (coughs) And this is what I want us to see thirdly and last. In any list, the two names that will often stand out will be the first name and the last name, right? This list of Jesus' apostles can be found in the other gospel accounts as well. You can find it in Matthew chapter 10. You can find it in Mark chapter 3. And every time, Peter is listed first. And Judas Iscariot is listed last. Now when it comes to Peter, though, I do believe that Peter was a sort of spokesman for the group giving him prominence on the list. Luke and the other gospel writers, all the other gospel writers, they always make sure to provide this description of Peter. Simon, you'll see in your Bible, Simon, whom he named Peter. And it's not coincidental that every gospel writer says this. Well, why were they so adamant about letting us know Peter's new name? I mean, the other apostles, they all had different names like Peter. Thomas was actually also called Didymus. Bartholomew was also called Nathaniel. Judas was also called Thaddeus. But they don't get the same kind of emphasis as Simon, who was called Peter. You see, I believe it was, it was only Simon out of the twelve whom the Lord Himself gave a new name. I think it's only Simon. And so it says there in our Bibles, Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. Why? I think to show that the Lord had given him a new identity. That Simon was no longer going to be the same. That Jesus had made him altogether brand new. Changed from the inside out. Transformed into a whole new, different person. Which tells us that those who belong to the church are those who have been made brand new. That they are no longer who they once were, but completely different. That they have been crucified with Christ and no longer do they live to themselves, but Christ now lives in them. And now the question is this. Can that be said of you? Have you been transformed into a new person? And you might say, Pastor Danny, yes, I am different. I go to church now. I do my best to live morally upright, to care for my family, to raise my kids. That's not what I'm asking. Have you been changed in here and here? Is Jesus Christ the one your heart longs to live for? Has your heart and your soul, has it been made new? New. Jesus is building His church not with bricks and stones, 
but with people who have been transformed and made new. Giving them new life. Giving them His life in exchange for their life. And that He did in by living in faithful trust of His Father and by His dying on the cross for sinners and by His rising from the dead to give sinners new and everlasting life. If you have not been made new, come to Jesus, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus to be made new. You see, there was someone here who looked the part, but in reality was not made new. Verse 16, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. How is it that after a whole night of prayer, Jesus chose the wrong man? Didn't He know that the son of perdition would betray Him for a fistful of coins? Did the Father somehow not answer Jesus' prayer when it came to the twelfth and last man? I'll answer the first eleven but I've messed up on the last. On the contrary, the Father was answering His Son's prayer. Not my will, but Your will be done. Peter lets us know in his sermon in the book of Acts, he says that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Judas Iscariot was no Accident. You see, his act of treachery was ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. Well then, well then, couldn't Judas say this on the day of judgment? What else could I do? I was merely fulfilling your purpose. I was simply doing your will. No, he couldn't. Because you see, no sinner can give that excuse. He was fully responsible. He acted out of His own volition. What we need to know is that God never created fresh evil into His heart. Plenty of it was already there. Judas was a devil from the beginning. All that he did, he himself chose to do. Rather, what Judas meant for evil, God used for good. Judas wasn't made new. He wasn't made new. And that was evidenced in his sorrow. If you remember after the crucifixion, in his sorrow, he he hung himself to death. Remember that? He killed himself. Now, there was a time for Peter that though he was made new, he didn't look like he was made new, right? After being made new, Peter, he, he failed. And he reverted back to his old ways. Renouncing his Lord a total of three times. But what was, what was the difference between Peter and his colleague Judas? You see, for Peter in his sorrow, he didn't turn to himself. He didn't turn to himself in his sorrow. But in his sorrow, he turned to Jesus. And that makes all the difference. In Peter, there was repentance, while in Judas, there was none. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 
where godly sorrow produces repentance. And the reason why, church, I'm so broken is I have a friend who is very sorrowful, who is thinking about taking his own life. And he's turning to himself in sorrow. And I'm praying every day. He turns to Jesus in his sorrow. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, Peter in being made new was evidenced in his repentance. Christian believer, you here who have been made new, is there any repenting that you need to do? Is there any repenting that you need to do? Have you been slipping back to your old ways and to the person that you once were? You see, the admonishment of God's Word is only kindness to you. It's His kindness, says Paul, that leads us to repentance. But there is a greater kindness that led Peter to his repentance. There is a greater kindness that led Peter to his repentance. Though Peter had reverted back to his old ways, Jesus made sure that his faith wouldn't fail. Well, how do we know that? Because in Luke 22, Jesus told Peter, He said, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. And Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you. And there we have the praying Lord once again. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Oh, church, may His kindness then lead us to repentance. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are so holy and you are so kind. And we confess that though you have made us new, we often live as we haven't been made new. We return to our sins and we become callous to your word and we disregard your Holy Spirit. And we ask for your forgiveness. We repent of our shameful sins. We turn afresh to you and ask that you would give us a renewed vigor and desire to trust and to obey You. We believe, but help our unbelief. Cause our hearts to look again to Christ, to know that He will hold us fast. That He will hold us fast. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.